Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, Helen Yaffe, talking about Cuba, both in the long sweep of its history since the revolution's victory in 1959, and more recently, about a round of protests in July, which were heavily advertised in the U.S. as being part of a mass movement for democracy. During those protests, I tried to get Yaffe in the show. She's been on twice before, mainly to talk about Cuba's response to COVID and its impressive biotechnology industry. I wanted to hear her perspective on the protests, but she was in Cuba at the time with an unreliable internet connection. So I waited for her return to Britain, which included an 11-day COVID quarantine on her arrival, for a more in-depth interview instead of the thrill of an on-site report. Many people on the left echo mainstream criticisms of Cuba as repressive and undemocratic. Sadly, there's some truth to the critique, but on the other hand, I've never heard any of the critics come up with a satisfactory response to my question, How would you defend the country against six decades of relentless hostility from the U.S.? Those decades of hostility included economic sanctions, an invasion, fomenting of domestic uprisings, and assassination attempts, all of which have failed. That long history of failure suggests that maybe the government has more popular support than our propagandists would have you believe. But Cuba has recently been suffering from COVID, both in the disease itself, as have many other countries around the world, and from the hit to tourism and remittances from Cubans abroad that the pandemic has induced. Add to that decades of U.S. sanctions intensified during the Trump years, and you have a potent set of challenges. Helen Yaffe is an economic historian who teaches at the University of Glasgow. Her book, We Are Cuba, published by Yale University Press, is a history of the country since the revolution with a special emphasis on the difficulties that plagued the country after the collapse of the USSR. Helen Yaffe stumbled over the author of a book called Guerrillas in Power. His name is K.S. Carroll, with a K, and the book came out in 1970. Here's Helen Yaffe. Let's start at the beginning. I'm curious, uh, the early days when revolutionary Cuba was just getting its footing, how much did they embrace the Soviet model of economic planning and how much did they try to do it on their own? What was the debate like in the early days after the revolution's success? Well, I think to first of all answer that question, to contextualize it, we have to remember that the Cuban revolution wasn't led or spearheaded by a Cuban Communist Party that was aligned with the Soviet Union or part of Comintern or anything like that. It was led by three revolutionary organizations. One of them was the equivalent of the Communist Party, the PSP. But really, it was led by the movement for the 26th of July, which was in turn led by Fidel Castro with Raul Castro, Che Guevara, Camilo Cienfuegos and other names that people will have heard of and the revolutionary student movement. So the nature of the Cuban revolution was very different. It was multi-class, popular, uprising and revolutionary movement against, yes, Batista, the dictatorship, but also against the domination of the United States. And if not overtly portrayed in that way, against the socio-economic expressions of that domination. So the monocrop culture, the um, endemic inequality, poverty, racism and so on. So the the nature of the revolution was very different. And the jury or historians and, and politicians are still out about, you know, to what extent was the plan always to instigate a socialist revolution with a socialist state and enter the the alliance with the Soviet Union. Um, there's a certain logic to which that process happened by opposing US imperialism and the domestic capitalist class with which it was aligned, the Cubans necessarily found that they uh, would either have to compromise or if they were going to radicalise and be consistent with their views, they would uh, have to take a socialist path. Then, you know, you get to the period by the late 1960s, they're starting to essentially make plans. So Che Guevara goes overseas and he's visiting countries and he's saying, what can you sell us? What can we sell you? Uh, And this is all before 
the official declaration that Cuba is a socialist country. When Che comes back, the Ministry of Industries is set up and other ministries which show that, you know, the state is going to play a bigger role in the economy, that they hint that planning is going to be introduced. So that process is happening. Um, 1961, you have in April, just before the Bay of Pigs invasion, uh, Fidel Castro stating that this is a socialist revolution and that becomes the character that it through which it is defined. But that did not by any means signify that they were going to adopt the Soviet economic planning and management system. And in fact, there was a lively debate among Cubans and among advisors from the Soviet bloc, not just the USSR, but other countries in the Soviet bloc, and advisors and people with expertise who came from Latin America. There were also Marxists from the United States. All over the world, there was this incredible dynamic of debate and ideas put into this like ingredients into a into a big pot and there were um, debates within Cuba about which should be the direction of the Cuban revolution and among those as you know I've written about Che Guevara was one of the people who was the strongest proponents of not blanket copying from the Soviet Union but actually looking at the material conditions in Cuba looking at the kinds of institutions productive structures and so on and creating a system that used all of those realities but also but within a Marxist framework and really what Che was trying to do is say well look we have these capitalist corporations in our country that are highly efficient and they use the latest technology but also management techniques and we need to copy from those but to do so within a socialist framework, so that the wealth that is produced is social wealth, not private wealth, and that social relations are socialist, not exploitative, so workers manage production and so on and so forth. So what took place in Cuba as a product of that is something that was subsequently called the Great Debate. And um, participants in this were Cubans, but also some well-known um, known as Marxists from outside, Charles Bettelheim and Ernst Mandau, were among them. And this debate took place quite openly in the journals of different ministries and other publications. Anyone could, you know, access them and read them. And it was about which economic management system the Cubans should take. On the one hand, there were those who said, we need to copy from the Soviet Union. They have the experience. They literally have the guidebook. And on the other hand was Che Guevara, who was saying, we need to create something that's appropriate to our conditions and the circumstances we are, the level of development that we have. And he created something called the budgetary finance system. I was amazed at this quote in your book, not one might what might think of this glamorous revolutionary that we kept <laughs> memorialized Che as now, but if there was someone in this country who was concerned for cost and efficiency, it was Che. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's the, the first book that I wrote, which was based on my PhD research. There's a whole chapter called um, Economic Analysis Inventories and Accounting or something like that. So, you know, how do you make that that material um, interesting? Well, there's these incredible stories about people who had to gallop on their horses from one sugar mill to the other, teaching people in intensive courses, overnight sessions, how to transfer their accounts from, you know, capitalist accounts to a socialist accounting system, then and then gallop on to the next one, say, hey, we'll be there at four in the morning with the danger of um, the bandidos, you know, the opposition bandits uh, shooting at them as they as they went on their way. So actually, if you think about Che training as a doctor and, you know, the idea of a doctor who has a diagnosis about how all these different parts and organisms function together for overall well-being. And he essentially applied that to his understanding of socialist planned economy. The Soviets were saying, well, what we need to do is raise production and productivity and we need to carry on using capitalist mechanisms like um, material incentives, competition, interest, credit, profit, motive and so on to achieve that. And then we'll deal with the aspect of consciousness and creating, you know, new human beings with new values and standards and so on. And Che argued very much that you you have to do those two processes in parallel. And that that may slow down the revolutionizing of the productive forces, but 
ultimately it was a quicker route to build socialism as a transition period to build communism and that after all was very much in his vision as the ultimate objective. For uh, a couple of decades the Soviet Union uh, really subsidized Cuban development. Uh, They bought sugar at higher than world prices and sold oil at lower prices so that was quite important uh, to uh, the early decades of the Cuban revolution especially given the hostility of the United States all along. How important was that that Soviet support? Clearly it was important, right? Because small island nations don't exist in a vacuum, right? But, um, you know, there is material in my book and other authors have have argued this and I, I think they're completely correct. If you look at other small island nations in the Caribbean, the British former colonies and when they were colonies were also subject to beneficial or preferential trade agreements for the production and export of sugar equally. In fact, at the period that we're talking about when Cuba sets up these agreements with the Soviet Union, only 10% of sugar is sold on the uh, open free market internationally. So yes, the assistance from the Soviet Union was important, but that is also a feature of international trade. The Soviets were saving themselves the costs of importing from somewhere else. And in terms of Cuban nickel, for example, they did a deal, they bought Cuban nickel, but that was a lot cheaper for them than going to try and dig up where it was in the in very difficult geological conditions to be able to, to get access to that. So it was trade that was, um, the preferential status of it was not unusual. It's always highlighted because it was preferential agreement with the Soviet Union, not with former colonising nation. Uh, as in the case of Britain and its Caribbean colonies. Um, but the other aspect is that it was beneficial all round. And I mean, you know, it's consistent with the notion of a socialist fraternal block and, and all the rest of it. But yeah, it was significant. Cuba, as I said, is a small island nation. I mean, it, it cannot exist in a vacuum. It needs it's reliant by its nature on international trade, and it will always be reliant on the international trade, whether it's a socialist system or a capitalist system. That's a question of the size of the population, the resources on the island, and so on. But it's by no means unique in that sense. I'm speaking with Helen Yaffe, author of We Are Cuba, published last year by Yale University Press. But nonetheless, the collapse of the Soviet Union was quite a blow to Cuba. Oh, absolutely. Um, Cuba lost more or less overnight. So, you know, within two to three years, Cuba lost nearly 90% of its trade and investment. Uh, As a consequence, its GDP fell by nearly 35% in just three years. By that point, the United States sanctions on Cuba were well already well beyond being a, a bilateral issue. What that means is that the Cubans from the outset, would have wished to have more trade with the rest of the world, including the um, European countries and Britain. And there's a lot of documentation from 1960, 61, 62, and so on, which shows that the White House was putting massive pressure on, for example, I've seen it because this is where I am in the UK, on the British government to uh, block deals that were done to sell Leyland buses to Cuba and um, basically before it was endorsed in legislation that the US would punish people and, and entities in other countries for trading with Cuba, engaging with Cuba, it was actually done through more informal political mechanisms. So Cuba suddenly finds itself in a situation where it has to... Um, reintegrate into the global capitalist market because there's very little alternative left but precisely in this era of the heyday of neoliberalism so extraordinarily tough and if you look at the results the shift in trade the shift in the productive structure it's quite phenomenal and it happens very quickly and with very little trauma so what I mean is that trade with the non-socialist countries goes from 10% to about 90% within a few years. That's one of the shifts. And the other is that uh, Cuba's exports go from being dominated by goods exports of sugar 
to within a you know very few years being dominated first by services exports first tourism and subsequently as we know by um, medical services exports so that's the the doctors and specialists going overseas and they also uh, started seeing an influx of foreign investment mostly from european companies yeah so that was quite important in the early to mid 1990s the cubans had to pass legislation they'd actually passed some legislation in the late 1980s but to allow foreign companies to invest in cuba on the basis of joint ventures but um hardly anything had happened so that new legislation was passed and then you see cuba really diversifying its trade and partnerships so spain is important the netherlands initially canada other European countries, Britain as well. And this investment is partly in the developing the tourism sector, which, as I said, is really important in the 1990s. Um, but also other things are, are gradually taking off. With Canada, you have Sherrett, who helps Cuba with domestic oil exploration and, and subsequently with nickel. So, um, yeah, this is despite pressure from the United States and, and those openings, the starts of those relationships are part of the reason why the Helms-Burton Act is passed in 1996, which has this Title III, which in the end was not implemented in 1996 because of international protests from Europe, Canada, and all around the world, because US citizens and the whole concept of a US citizen was completely uh, abnormal in, in this legislation, because Cubans who hadn't been Cuban citizens during the nationalizations of the early 60s were granted citizenship in order to be able to take court cases against foreign individuals or entities who were, as they said, trafficking in their former properties or engaging in their former properties. So this was um, an overt piece of legislation to take US national domestic law and uh, apply it to citizens around the world and entities around the world. And the European Union complained and objected and threatened to take a case to the World Trade Organization. Canada did the same in relation to NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And so Title III was not implemented. But clearly that was a reaction to seeing, look, Cuba is getting through this 1990s. It survived that terrible 93 to 95 period of severe shortages and economic crisis. And it's starting to recover. It's starting to establish new relationships new partners in the world. It's starting to develop new sectors. Actually, Cuba was developing its biotech sector from the 1980s. And it's an incredible story, which I tell in the book. But by the 1990s, this becomes increasingly important. And then you see um, into the 2000s, the start of exports of Cuban biotech products. And so it's not just tourism um, that, that they are uh, you know, now selling to the world. Some of my Trotskyist friends look at these foreign investments and say, Cuba is not a socialist country, it's become capitalist, this is a sign, you know, despite the US embargo, it's joined the capitalist world. My impression is that Cuba really had no alternative. They were really forced to um, court this foreign investment and uh, try to work it into their development strategy. How do we read that, uh, that role of foreign investment politically? The issue of foreign investment is a very sensitive, controversial issue within Cuba. And behind each one of these pieces of legislation, the incremental legislation in relation to foreign investment, there has been massive debates that have taken place among Cubans, among uh, social scientists, economists, experts, and so on. Because, of course, foreign investment is associated with the state of Cuba in the 1950s, a domination by foreign interests and so on from the United States. However, it's very easy to sit back and criticise Cuba from the comfort of your office or your home in an imperialist country where you have never actually faced the challenge of putting your fine words into policies and trying to action change. And, you know, there's a wonderful quote from Che Guevara where he's criticised by, oh, what was his name? Someone, Carol, who wrote a book, Gorillas in Power, and... Uh, Carol relates this whole discussion and he's criticising Che from the Trotskyist position for using Soviet manuals. And Che says, well, they're the only manuals we have. Have you provided us with manuals? What else do we have to go on? But he also says, what do you think this is? 
a Parisian cafe where we can sit round, you know, having intellectual discussions about Marxism. In a few short years, we have learned the meaning of the nuclear threat, of blockade, of sanctions, a total shift in trade. You know, so there, there is also these realities. If you face the choice between the unpleasant, you know, Fidel said this, we're doing this, we don't like it, but we're doing it. The unpleasant choice of um, engaging with capitalist interests around the world, because you need the capital to, um, you, your infrastructure is completely run down, you can't get spare parts for anything, you can't buy oil, you know, you face that choice, or what's the other option? You close the borders and you let people starve to death. We have to be a little bit more realistic. And that's why I always talk about an imminent critique. Let's look at the options that Cuba faced in each period. Let's look at the room for maneuver they had and the decisions. They're making decisions within a certain framework. And in every step, what you can see, you know, I I talk as well in one of my books about the uh, pendulum. So it swings closer to the sort of very strong ideas of Che Guevara and then and then it swings the other way towards more market openings and so on but the way that it swings is determined by the external and internal context by the restraints within which Cuba um, operates and so you can sit back in the comfort of an imperialist country and criticize Cuba but you're not responsible for solving these very real daily problems that that Cubans face and for prioritizing first of all the independence and sovereignty of Cuba that has been number one and um, if you actually examine the kind of contracts and the kind of agreements that are done with foreign capital you you know the um, Economist newspaper once did a list of the worst countries to do business in and Cuba was like the penultimate in the world why because they're so demanding in terms of labor rights and conditions and environmental protections, they have to take that capital. It's a small island nation. They need capital to invest in upgrading their infrastructure and improving the standard of living. They can't get it internally. The level of internal savings is too low. They are certainly not going to open up a stock exchange and allow for that sort of gambling, um, which would be obviously used by their opponents around the world. So they have choices and the choices that they their analysis has suggested that foreign direct investment is the safest way for them to get foreign investment in the short term, which they can control. It's very, very controlled. Um, Most is still joint ventures where the Cuban state has the determining stake, uh, decision making stake. Um, And then the other form is remittances, right? So that's, there's no coincidence that every time a US president or administration tries to uh, squeeze Cuba, to uh, put pressure on Cuba, one of the first things they do is go for remittances. I met at a conference years ago, a guy who worked uh, in Michael Manley's uh, finance ministry in uh, Jamaica. He said, you just have no idea what it's like to sit in the finance ministry and have to come up with $100 million for oil imports next week. And uh, that, that really stuck with me, that it's really easy to uh, sit in a, at a university or at a conference or in, in the comfort of my uh, my home office and wag my finger at these folks. But uh, having to come up with that $100 million is a really, uh, <laughs> it's, it's tough to think about. Or, and if you don't, then your hospital generators don't have fuel, your buses, your public transport doesn't move, you know, so then you have a, you have a problem on your hands. That was the first part of my interview with Helen Yaffe, a lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, and author of We Are Cuba, published last year by Yale University Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
Some of Money by Pink Floyd. And now part two of my interview with Helen Yaffe, a lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow and author of We Are Cuba, published last year by Yale University Press. More recent history, uh, the period uh, when Fidel uh, left the scene and turned things over to Raul Castro, his brother, and there was uh, a period of what was perceived abroad as uh, marketization, a movement in a more capitalist direction. Raul Castro himself complained that uh, there was just a little bit too much egalitarianism in Cuban culture. Equality is not egalitarianism. This, in the final analysis, is also a form of exploitation of the worker who is good by those who are not, or worse yet, by the lazy. Well, that sounds like, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial board was moving in. <laughs> what went on in that period? What, what were the reforms like uh, and uh, were they durable uh, or reversed? Uh, and what was the general um, strategy of that period about 10 years ago? I mean, in general terms, they were trying to raise the level of productivity and efficiency within the socialist framework. This was clear to those of us following the political economy. None of the reforms were as dramatic as was claimed by Eva, those left-wing critics uh, of of Cuba, the idealists, or by the mainstream media, you know, Raul, you know, embraces capitalism and all this stuff. And so what I try to do in the book is, first of all, there's one chapter called Raul's Reforms, which uh, walks the reader through what happened and the context in which it happened, what what each measure was uh, intended to achieve and what the results were. And then I move on to another chapter, which is called uh, the Cuban tightrope between the plan and the market, which deals with all of the contradictions that were thrown up through this reform process, um, which, you know, are not necessarily new. Socialist transition processes are always full of um, contradictions. It's a very (laughs) extraordinarily complex process. How do you increase productivity and efficiency so there is more to distribute, but at the same time, Um, limiting the use of capitalist mechanisms that encourage people to produce more, to work harder and so on, so that there's more of a cake to be shared out. Uh, So very complex. And what happens essentially is that the Cuban economy is in crisis. It takes a real beating in the 1990s. And it's not just that there was an economic crisis. I mean, the whole of their infrastructure is worn out A lot of their machinery and equipment comes from the Soviet Union. That doesn't exist anymore. Just getting spare parts is impossible. Um, But, you know, they also need to invest in in every sector, essentially. So um, they take the the measures we discussed in the 1990s with tourism. And then you have the opportunity to expand Cuban medical internationalism, which by 2004, 2005 is Cuba's biggest source of revenue. So the economy is improving to the extent where they can afford to have a critical re-evaluation of productive structures and uh, institutions and uh, question of property relations and so on. So in a sense, uh, because if you read what Raoul says, you know, he initiates these reforms with a really cutting critique of the amount of land that is lying idle. It's been overtaken by marabou, this this plant with deep roots, apparently originally from North Africa or the Middle East. And, you know, he he says this beautiful fertile land and I can't see anything growing. Everyone wants to see higher salaries. And but essentially we can't do that unless we produce more or else we, we end up with inflation. So we need these reforms to create that drive to greater productivity and efficiency. And and that's essentially what it was about. But every single measure that was taken had um, quite a clear boundary of how far that measure could go. And many of them, when the essential problem which they set out to address was solved, many of them were rolled back. The international media was, uh, was very selective in the quotes that it took from Raoul. 
Um, but he came out very strongly when he initiated this process. And he said, I am a, in no way is my intention to reintroduce capitalism. In fact, everything I'm doing is to protect and strengthen the socialist revolution. But, you, you know, the, again, the context of what is possible in a Cuba that is globally isolated determines very much the direction of travel. When Cuba went through the special period, they were uh, short of resources in every sector. But what they did is prioritise social welfare, health, education and so on um, to, to keep people alive. And one of the ways they did that is they kept people in employment, uh, even when there wasn't the raw, raw materials to produce sufficiently, even when, when they weren't being employed more, um, very productively. But the idea was that keeping people in employment, they at least have a minimum salary, low as it may be. They have access to the benefits of uh, employment. So in most workplaces, you know, people are getting some meals and food and so on. And they're also connected to the sort of political collective institutions that work means much more in Cuba than just going to work for a salary. So what happened is you have very low productivity of labor. And um, when the economic situation starts to improve, it creates the possibility of dealing with that latent issue, low productivity, low salary cycle. Um, many of the reforms introduced by Raul were to um, create alternative forms of employment. Now, the state didn't necessarily have the resources to play the historic role of being the only employer or the majority employer in Cuba. So it opened up spaces where people could be self-employed and subsequently that became small businesses and so on. So there is a logic to, I mean, an explanation, let's say, to all of the measures that were introduced, which goes back to this root challenge of raising productivity and efficiency within this socialist framework. So the, the improvement in the economy allows the government to try and tackle this cycle of low productivity and low salaries uh, but it needs to do that through this uh, changing the employment structure, through changing rules on property ownership and so on. And, and that explains a large part of the measures and regulations introduced under Raul. One of the things that struck, struck me as I was reading the book was that throughout all these crucial periods in uh, Cuban history over the last 60 or so years, there is always extensive debate very public debate, honest debate, of a sort that people who read uh, the standard propaganda about Cuba would be surprised by. Um, could talk some about this tradition or the nature of debate, uh, internal debate within Cuba. Yeah, well, I think this goes back to the um, characterization that I gave at the beginning of the nature of the revolution as a mass social movement. Che has a quote where he says, when you see Fidel Castro talking to the population, it's like they're in a conversation. And but obviously that was not sustainable. That that was insufficient. So as the revolution progressed and, and established itself and consolidated, they sought mechanisms to uh, create forums for this debate, to institutionalize these discussions. And that was a, an incremental process. In fact, one thing interesting about Cuba's electoral delegate structures, it's uh, democracy, um, as those outside who only accept the, the sort of liberal capitalist vision of democracy will not accept that it is a democracy. The one thing we can say about Cuban democracy as it is, is that they are constantly updating, reforming, improving, evaluating, critiquing their own systems of interaction. If you read Cuban social scientists, political scientists, they are some of the strongest critics of Cuban democracy, but because they want to deepen and extend the model of popular grassroots participation, not because there isn't a party political system where you have groups of vested interests representing themselves in a in a legislature, but because they want to, um, they're constantly seeking mechanisms in which Cubans at the grassroots community level can have greater leverage, say, influence over the decisions that impact their daily lives. Now in Cuba, there is a process of decentralization of budgets and decision making to local communities or popular councils. And that process, I expect to, to increase. The new constitution that was recently passed changed some of the structures of political representation in order to achieve this decentralization. 
but some of it you know has yet to be implemented and that process will be unraveling so yeah i mean anyone who's been to cuba will tell you that uh cubans have opinions about everything you know always critiquing always reflecting always uh, opining and um you know they're encouraged to do that through this process these processes you've referred to these mass consultations and you know as you say some of the statistics are phenomenal and actually it's very very hard for people who live in a capitalist democracy to believe it unless they see it so you know i know i write about it i know that you know i do my research and i put it out there and i'm also sure that lots of readers feel skeptical but there it is when they introduce i mean we've been talking about raul castro's reforms when they introduce them they um were based on a popular consultation where people were asked to say what were the, I mean, everybody, not people, not just a select through, but everyone in the country was invited to a forum. They were invited to give their critique. What are the main problems? What, you know, what did they think was wrong? Make suggestions. And these were compiled and and worked on by uh, experts and, and communist party representatives and presented as something called the guidelines for the economic and political policy of the communist party. Now, this was then printed and distributed again to the whole country and forums were created within the following three months for members of the public or in workplaces and neighbourhoods or uh, schools even to sit down and debate and make recommendations and give their opinion. And these were all anonymously recorded subsequently analysed, categorised and so on. And as a result of that consultation, 68% of the original guidelines were modified. That is, for us, an alien concept of being able to, to get a preview of what a government is proposing, a major policy change, and actually having the opportunity to give our view and to influence the direction of travel. And, you know, it it's becomes quite hard. We're so indoctrinated to believe that we live in democracies despite all of the evidence that we can do so little to influence what goes on around us in terms of economics politics or social policy cultural policy or anything else in terms of our ability to influence how the government has managed the global pandemic and the incredible transfer of wealth public wealth first to the banks in the 2008-9 crisis and now to private corporations who have mismanaged the global health crisis in the context of the pandemic so it is very challenging for people to open their minds and actually absorb this concept of a different form of democracy I'm speaking with Helen Yaffe author of We Are Cuba published last year by Yale University Press okay now let's uh, move to the present, the uprisings of recent months and uh, the foreign reception of that. Um, we heard a lot in the U.S. Uh, and I suppose other Western countries as well about the uh, mass protests in favor of democracy that uh, occurred uh, in the early part of the summer. You visited Cuba. What did you see? What was the nature of these protests? Who was protesting? How much foreign support was behind those protests? And um, what are the broad population's reactions? So to contextualize, essentially, we are talking about one day of protests, which lasted a few hours. I don't know if there's a definitive number. There is a I watched an, a, a communications analyst the other day did a report that said it was in 12 cities that these protests took place. I've said dozens just, you know, to to be uh, for the benefit of the doubt and um, lasted a few hours in these places. And this is the, these were the first violent protests in Cuba of any significance for 27 years. So that's just to provide some context. In relation to my own experience, I was not at a protest, didn't witness one. I was actually leaving the quarantine hotel when exactly the time when they... Um, it, in all these places apparently spontaneously all happened at more or less the same time the spark at the same time um and I didn't hear about it until I was watching the Euro Cup final which England was playing in and at halftime the broadcast was interrupted by a live announcement from the president Miguel Diaz-Canal saying that these things had happened so first of all the Cuban population was informed about anti-government protests by the government and uh, Miguel Diaz-Canal gave an impassioned speech 
And he said, and I think this is really important to to note, he recognised the legitimate complaints and frustration of of many of the people on the protests. But he also warned them against being manipulated by external forces, Miami-based influencers, by the 20 million regime change funding from the United States that's approved in the US Congress. He he didn't give those figures, I am. But, you know, um, I'm saying from an external US-based campaign with an agenda to foster destabilization within Cuba, ultimately for the purpose of regime change. So he warned Uh, them against being manipulated and he ended with an impassioned declaration to say the streets belong to the revolutionaries and subsequent to that all over Cuba thousands of Cubans went out in towns and cities across the country in protest in support of the Cuban government and in support of socialism. Now what I witnessed later was many images and videos even from these protests had been reproduced and manipulated to suggest that these were anti-government protests. So there was even, you know, a a Cuban-American politician who's one of the people pushing for greater sanctions, more punishment of Cuban population, was speaking on on, on a mainstream US media channel. And they had these images behind him. And they had blurred out the messages on the placard because they were pro government and pro socialist Now, that was one aspect of the manipulation. It went a lot further. There were images of a protest in 2011 on the Egyptian Malakon with tens of thousands of people. And they were circulated, including by some of the key media influencers um, who are, you know, part of this Miami campaign. They were circulated as if they were protests from that day in Cuba. Argentina, that same day, had won the America's Cup. Tens of thousands went out to celebrate. Those images were circulated. There were even images of uh, protesters in Spain being badly beaten by police in a protest about evictions. They were circulated as if they'd happened in Cuba and worse and worse and worse. It was quite phenomenal. Now, I didn't see most of this for the first few days because the Internet access was cut off. Now, the government didn't say this, but I suspect the government cut off the Internet access precisely to stop more efforts to coordinate from outside uh, to coordinate more protests. But when, um, you know, but I was speaking to people outside Cuba and they were, you know, it was clear that there was incredible manipulation and a certain degree of fabrication of what was happening and and, a definitely exaggeration. I had people, you know, warning me to take care and all this stuff. The next day, I travelled through Havana. I had lots of things to do. I've just come out of quarantine. It was the first day I was out there in Cuba working. And I travelled up and down on public transport and in taxis. And it was there was calm and peace everywhere. Now, it was a tense calm. That's certainly true. And I subsequently heard about one um, violent protest on the edge of Havana, a protest that turned very violent. Uh, Lots of people were hurt, including police officers and civilians, and one um, protester was killed. But, you know, from that point on, I travelled all over Havana because of uh, COVID restrictions. We're unable to leave the province, go to another province. And I never saw another protest. That's not true. I never saw an anti-government protest. On the Saturday after those Sunday, the 11th protest, Um, I went to the Malacon, the seawall in Havana, and there was a protest of 100 to 200,000 Cubans in support of the revolution, in support of socialism, in support of the government. And Miguel Diaz-Canal spoke. So did Gerardo Hernandez, one of the Cuban five who was imprisoned in the United States for what he had done in the 1990s to um, find out about and warn the Cuban government about acts of terrorism planned for Miami. And other speakers were there. And, and there was an um, almost a jubilant atmosphere. We went through, we did Vox Pops with uh, people in the crowd, young, old, black, white. And, uh, you know, there was a real kind of jubilant defiance. Like, we're here and we are going to do whatever it takes to defend the revolution in Cuba. 
I read uh, a couple of articles uh, recently about how uh, the CIA and the U.S. government more generally have been trying to uh, create what looks like a much more liberal opposition that is not like the Miami fascists, but uh, something that liberals and Trotskyists could feel more comfortable with. Uh, did you see any evidence of that or what, do you have any thoughts on that? I um, have read material, looked up some of the documents. I mean, USAID, the US Agency for International Development, initiated a program in 2009 to focus on trying to spark a youth movement in opposition to the state and the revolution in Cuba. And this took uh, various forms um, of starting projects with Afro-Cubans, with artists, um, they even, I mean, some of this was exposed by AP. There was programs to get young people from Latin America who didn't really know what they were involved in or what the consequences would be if their involvement was discovered to get them to Cuba to set up workshops that are supposed to be HIV awareness. And and eventually what, I mean, what they were essentially doing is looking for civil, what they call it, civil society leaders who they could then turn into the future leaders of a opposition movement in Cuba. So that's been going on. And you had the uh, San Isidro movement in that hit the sort of headlines in November last year. Um, and then, you know, artists coming out and, um, presenting themselves as a sort of moderate opposition. So that that has all been going on. And I think that the Cuban government has a very difficult tightrope to walk between, um, you know, and they've recognised this, they need to, to permit protest, to permit critique, to open up spaces to diverse interests, which is a, you know, quite new phenomena for them, very much influenced through social media and the internet for external forces but just by globalization many cubans now travel around the world and uh, you know see different forms of organizing and 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 representing interests and so on so they have to create that opening in those spaces for that but at the same time they are acutely aware based on experience that every and all forums which they open there will be the well-oiled attempts at, you know, democracy promotion, regime change programs will be looking to exploit all openings for their own agenda, which is to foster this internal uh, opposition movement in Cuba. So it's a very complex uh, tightrope that the Cubans have to walk. And finally, uh, the uh, uh, Obama years saw some warming in U.S.-Cuban relations, some loosening the constrictions. Uh, The Trump administration really retightened the screws. Where are we now? Is there any um, change under Biden or is it uh, more of the same? Unfortunately, the only change under Biden has been to entrench the status quo and also to to actually worsen it. The Biden um, administration responded to the protests by issuing more sanctions. Um, I believe there's been four sets of sanctions issued by the Biden administration since uh, the protest, which which means since his administration began. So despite his campaign promises that they would reverse some of the cruelest measures, he didn't use that term, I am, of the Trump administration, which really stopped Cuban families reuniting, stopped Cubans um, in the United States from sending money to their families and, and all these kind of things, he would reverse those to ease the situation for Cuban people and Cuban families. He did nothing he had done nothing before the process took place. And, you know, the strategic planning of the opposition was aware of that. By these protests happening, it creates a flashpoint where um, the Cuban government can be condemned for the repression after it arrests violent protesters and so on. And it then makes it very difficult for the president to look soft on Cuba. And that was the same. If you think about it, just after Obama came in, you had the arrest of Alan Gross uh, with Trump. You had uh, the accusation still unproven, still totally uh, scientifically bizarre or unfeasible, unproven, let's just say, of the sonic attacks shortly after um, the the Trump administration came into power. This is not entirely a coincidence. I mean, I I think the prospect that Biden is now going to soften the tone or reverse sanctions on Cuba is, is very limited. And what we have to understand is that while he doesn't do that, the very cruel, as I've called it, and punishing impact of those 
243 measures passed by Trump, they continue. And Cubans are facing the impact of those sanctions every day. And it's creating an exhaustion and frustration because daily life is extremely hard for all Cubans. And it's not targeted. It doesn't target Communist Party members or militants. It doesn't target government elite. Every single person in Cuba is suffering as a result of those sanctions. And of course, uh, the enemies of Cuba will say that uh, the sanctions are just an excuse. And the real problem is the internal management of Cuba, not U.S. sanctions. But uh, U.S. sanctions, six decades or so of U.S. sanctions have really taken a bite. The obvious reply to that is um, lift the sanctions and we'll see how well Cuba does. And I would point out to the fact that Obama did nothing like lifting the sanctions, but he, through signing executive degrees, allowed some spaces to open up for exchange with US interests. And the the impact was obvious to everyone, right? It, you know, there was a lot of potential. So if the sanctions are just an excuse, lift them. Just get them lifted and then we'll see. Then we'll judge Cuba on its own front. On the other hand... Why don't you imagine the United States in a context in which the rest of the world won't trade? Now, the US is very different. It's a huge internal market, but it's still heavily dependent on its foreign investments, on purchases from abroad. So just imagine the rest of the world putting the shutters down to the United States. And and let's wonder, how would the US do if it has done so badly with the pandemic? Whenever there's a question of, you know, protecting social welfare over private profit. I mean, the performance has been appalling. And we know, you know, liberal neoliberalism has this myth that if you open up the markets, everyone will benefit. Well, you know, 30 years of neoliberalism in Latin America has, uh, has um, exposed that myth. So, you know, if the blockade is just an excuse, then lift it. I was Helen Yaffe, a lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow and author of We Are Cuba, published last year by Yale. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of T-Rex's Children of the Revolution. Till next week, bye. Good for my